Greetings. Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm Julian Vigo, your host, and this is our launch podcast. Our first guest is Noam Chomsky. His work from the 1950s has revolutionized the field of linguistics by treating language as a uniquely human, biologically based cognitive ability. Through Chomsky's contributions to linguistics and the related fields of cognitive psychology and the philosophies of mind and language, he has helped to initiate and sustain what has come to be known as the cognitive revolution. Chomsky has also gained a worldwide following as a political dissident for his analyses of the pernicious influence of economic elites on U.S. domestic politics, foreign policy, ecology, and intellectual culture. He is Laureate Professor of Linguistics at the University of Arizona and Institute Professor Emeritus at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he is the author of more than 100 books on topics from linguistics to war, politics, mass media, and ecology. I welcome Noam Chomsky. I wanted to thank you for joining me for the first podcast for Savage Minds. I'm honored to be speaking to you after all these years. You were born during the Great Depression. You have lived through the threat of Nazism that it posed over Europe, Asia, parts of Africa. You have witnessed throughout your life huge shifts of priorities of Western nations from environmental destruction, nuclear threats, state terrorism, and then, of course, the terrorism that we were given by the media post 9-11. As you recall, I wrote you the day after 9-11. I was caught in this haze by having probably watched too much CNN. And I thought to myself, well, I'm the last person on earth who would be caught up in what was, uh, you know, Islamophobia and a fear-mongering machine brought to us to make us fear a certain sector of the planet. And I wrote you with this, oh my God, what has happened to me? Now here we are 19 years later in a very different world with a global pandemic where there's an appallingly short list of leaders who've been able to mitigate the spread of this virus. You've written a lot about nuclear and environmental catastrophe. How do you see this all playing together? I mean, we've been told by virologists that a lot of what brought COVID to us was ecological destruction. Well, first of all, we have to be a little cautious about the world. There are leaders who have been doing very effective work and overcoming the pandemic. So uh, Vietnam, for example, which has a 1400 kilometer border with South China, where the main virus is, has had essentially no cases. Till recently it had none. Now I think it has maybe a dozen or two. Uh, Senegal, poor country in Africa, virtually none. Other countries in Africa have handled it very well. South Korea, which did have a major outbreak at first, very quickly overcame it with effective measures. They now have it under control. Uh, China itself, which was where the pandemic was raging in January, 
now seems to have it under control. The same in Taiwan, in uh, New Zealand, Australia, uh, Europe kind of delayed, but now most of continental Europe has it pretty much under control. The Nordic countries, it's pretty much under control. Sweden was an outlier, but it's now back to the norm. Uh, there are countries that are, where it's just raging, uh, totally out of control. Uh, if you look at the statistics on the number of cases, there are three countries which are way above anyone else. The United States, which is the leader, uh, India and Brazil. Then well below them in the next place is Russia. Maybe an accident, maybe it isn't. Right. that f countries that have extreme autocratic, anti-democratic leaders happen to be way in the lead in, uh, in uh, uh, the pandemic. We can look at the particular measures that they have taken or failed to take and we can see the reasons. So for example, in the United States, which has the worst record in the world, and of course, by far the richest country in the world, the best facilities, the easiest position to overcome it, but the worst record. The record is so awful that uh, the major medical journal in the United States, New England Journal of Medicine, which has been around for 200 years and has never been made a statement about an election, just came out with an, uh, edit, strong editorial saying we have to get rid of the gang in Washington because it's just a disaster for health. So yes, and the same is true in India, same is true in Brazil. So it's not the case that there are no leaders. There are countries, the, the facts of the matter are that by January 10th, uh, China had provided the World Health Organization and the entire world uh, with all the relevant information they had identified the virus, sequenced the genome, gave the information to everyone. Virologists all over the world knew what to do. Uh, some of them, act, some countries, uh, they acted, other countries they didn't. Uh, it's, uh, but it could be under control. Now this continues. It's very interesting to look back. First of all, if this pandemic sooner or later will be overcome at terrible cost, mostly needless cost, as we can see from the fact that uh, very poor countries even were able to deal with it very quickly, even though they were extremely vulnerable. So it's a very needless cost. It's due to the malevolence and incompetence of leadership class in a number of countries primarily the United States. So the experiment is more or less over. Right. You can look at the results. Um, there are alternative ways of dealing with it. Uh, France had a terrible record. Uh, the worst of the ones I mentioned, mm -hmm. but that's due to choices that are made. Three reasons. One is capitalist institutions. The drug companies were not interested because there's no profit. Second, neoliberalism. The government couldn't step in, has the labs, has the resources, but it couldn't step in because the neoliberal doctrine 
is, as Ronald Reagan enunciated, government is the problem. You have to hand everything over to private corporations because they, they're totally unaccountable to the public, so they're fine. Well, that eliminates two, that's two reasons. The third reason has to do with leadership. So take the United States. Uh, the Obama administration did uh, make preparations. They set in motion a, an implemented a detailed pandemic response system. January 2017, President Trump came into office, first act, first days of his office, dismantled the whole system. Uh, there were American scientists working with Chinese colleagues uh, trying to detect potential coronaviruses from caves in China. Trump canceled it. Uh, there's a health system in the United States is very backward by international standards, but uh, Trump made it worse. First steps in office started to defund the Center for Disease Control and other health-related parts of the government. Continued every year in office. This last February, when the pandemic was already raging, he knew it, he was denying it, he made further his budget proposal was to defund the Center for Disease Control. You mentioned uh, at the beginning, the early 30s, that's my childhood memories. It was pretty horrible listening to Hitler's Nuremberg rallies over the radio. I couldn't understand the words, but you could understand the mood, you know, the fanaticism, the extremism. Uh, the hysteria, applause for the noble leader. Well, it was horrible, but at least you could argue that fascism was doing something for the people. Monstrous crimes, but yeah, they didn't get the countries moving again, both in Italy and Germany. And they were winning, winning victories, horrible victories, but they were winning them. Trump's doing nothing. Very striking feature of the current moment is that three super authoritarian leaders, hatred, the, the most advanced in hatred of democracy among the former democratic states, mm -hmm. Trump, Modi, Bolsonaro, destroying their populations, being adored, adored, worshipped by their backers in a manner similar to Nazi Germany, fascist Italy. That's a pretty surprising fact. It's the kind of thing that you see only in uh, mega churches of uh, evangelicals. A striking feature of the modern period. I think there's some reasons for it, but it's worth thinking about. I read a lot of media from all the spectrum because I like to see what is being said. One thing that really distressed me was CNN's representation of the virus through Chris Cuomo. It seemed to be this very weird reality show uh, trumped up as news. Um, there are details, uh, ironically, uncovered by places like Fox. I mean, like, who would think? Anyways, the entire circus of Chris Cuomo uh, leaving his basement to come out. And, you know, CNN is very, as you know, very anti-Trump. And I'm thinking, wait a sec, 
the media is having a hand in, in a bizarre way in Trump's popularity. The more they, even the ones like CNN that dislike him, they've made him into a clown. They've improved his ratings. It's almost no wonder that he, he was put into the office because people are, are given these kinds of uh, protagonists to follow that seem more caricatures than reality. The way that CNN and Fox go at each other, not directly, it's almost as much a problem as the fact that we are given now, post-Sanders, these electoral choices of the least evil once again, right? And I'm, I'm a bit dismayed that the media today, like major media I'm speaking of, has not really been able to address some of the problems in its representation, in its hand of making Trump into who he is, even those that hate him. And I'm wondering what the way out is, because we're living in a world where we have major media, independent media, and then social media, which is the new public square, where now free speech is being controlled by private industry. First of all, the, the major media today, like CNN, which you mentioned, are not very different from what they've been in the past. They're based, of course, they're, they're highly supportive of state power, corporate power, business power. That's the framework in which they work. Mm -hmm. But uh, allow some degree of independent voices. It's been true in the past, still true. Fox News is something quite different. The Murdoch uh, media all over the world are, uh, don't even pretend to be uh, anything remotely like independent media. They don't even pretend. Uh, they're just specifically, I mean, they're like, you know, any more than Der Sturmer in Nazi Germany pretended to be an independent journal. Now take Fox okay. News in the United States. It's an echo chamber for the far right. Trump says something, gets repeated uh, with awe and reverence by Sean Hannity, uh, uh, the rest of them that evening. Uh, Trump listens to it the next morning and repeats it. It's an echo chamber for the very far right. Now, if you look at access to media, that's been studied and it's pretty interesting. Uh, if you, there are studies, careful studies, which ask Democrats and Republicans, which media do you look at? Uh, print, print uh, radio, television, internet. Turns out among Democrats, it's pretty much what you'd expect. Fair range of, of media. Not There's no left media. That's just not permitted. There's no national media in the United States. Nothing like BBC, uh, uh, Deutsche Welle, anything like that, but there's, uh, which have some degree of independence. Uh, there's nothing like that. There's only centrist and right-wing media. The centrist ones are pretty you know, kind of moderately liberal, mostly, like uh, CNN of the New York Times. Not too far, not as, not as far as Sanders, not Social Democrat can't have that, but moderate <laughs> liberal. Uh, among 
Democrats, they look at a fairly wide range of these media. Among Republicans, Fox News or Rush Limbaugh, ultra-right uh, radio, uh, television, uh, 30 million people tuning in to hear him say that uh, uh, there are four corners of deceit in the country, uh, science, uh, academia, uh, government, and media. They thrive on deceit. So when the scientists tell you there's a epidemic, pandemic, forget it. They're just thriving on deceit. That's what almost half the Republican listens to all the time. That's the only thing they hear. It's not surprising that almost half of the Republicans don't even agree that the world is warming. None of the ones who do, most of them think it's not, a, humans don't have anything to do with it. Well, I'm sure you're aware flat earthery has made a comeback in recent years. There are flat earth conventions, as shocking as that sounds. And people are grasping for, well, it's a trumped up science. I mean, it's not a science, it's hokum. But we're living in a world where people are searching for new truths because the facts before them aren't cutting it. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that news channels like Fox are infotainment. People don't want facts, they want to feel entertained. I mean, there's a lot to say about the media and what's wrong with them, but I think that's not going deep enough. It's the same as with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. If we want to know the reasons, we look at what I mentioned before, capitalist logic and the hammer blows of the neoliberal version of capitalism, which made it much harsher and more brutal. Those are the fundamental issues. And the same is true in the, about what you're now saying, people looking for answers. Yes, when the world falls apart, you look for answers. What are the answers? There are answers, but people aren't seeing them. No. Let's just take the neoliberal assault of the last 40 years started with basically two principles that were stated very clearly. Uh, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, government is the problem. Got to get things out of the hands of government. Government is somewhat responsive to the population. Got to get rid of it. Move things into the hands of private power, totally unaccountable to the population. What does private power do? Well, the economic guru of neoliberalism, Milton Friedman, highly regarded, 1981, right at the beginning, came out with a major article, said the sole responsibility of corporations is to enrich themselves. Nothing else. They have no responsibility to the workforce, to the community, to the world, anything else. So put these two things together, Everything must go into the hands, decision-making must go into the hands of private corporations, which have no responsibility except to enrich themselves. What do you expect to come out of this? Well, pretty obvious. Actually, we have measures of it now. In the United States, the RAND Corporation, ultra-respectable, independent research agency, quasi-governmental, just came out with an estimate 
of how much money was, as they put it, transferred, I would say stolen, but how much money was transferred from the working class and the middle class, lower 90% of the population, to the super rich during this 40-year period. Now, their estimate is $47 trillion. And that's an underestimate because it leaves out many things. So yes, people have been hit by the very, the super rich robbing them of $47 trillion or more. They may not know that, but right. they know that their lives have stagnated while there's extreme wealth. So they're angry. They want, they have been hit. They want answers. They're not getting them. They're not getting this answer. They're not being told that the problem is, first of all, capitalist logic. Second, not just for the pandemic, for many other things. And second, the super extreme version of capitalist savagery called neoliberalism. That's where we should start. Then you get to Fox News and CNN. Being raised in North America, you're made to think that you make money because you deserve it, right? That's a huge part of the ethos of, of uh, let's say, you know, Americans and even Canadians, even though Canada has medicine going for it. And I was looking back at um, an interview you gave recently where you said socialist means anything left of Attila the Hun, which made me laugh. But I was then thinking about how the right or the Republicans themselves used to be far more socialist. Uh, you know, point in case, when Bernie Sanders quipped during one of the debates that he wouldn't raise taxes as much as Eisenhower, he was precise. I went and Googled it and sure enough, Eisenhower was taxing the top marginal tax rate at 91%. So people who in the 1950s were earning $200,000 or more were taxed at 91%, which resembles nothing of Reaganism, nothing of anything since, even by Clinton or Obama. People are not left with this sense of community in North America so much because we're taught each one for themselves. I mean, the neoliberalism we know from you know, Milton Friedman, but then there's a social aspect of neoliberalism, which is very much caught up in me, myself and I, and you have very popularly critiqued postmodernism and the downfall of postmodernism is in fact, in recent years, a focus on selfhood and identity politics. And I'm wondering if you might speak to this where we sort of lost the sense of community, which capitalism wants to get us away from, right? And then the sense of the self that's coming out of, bizarrely, the left. The left has been focusing more on identity politics than on class. Well, it's true that the capitalism in general and the neoliberal assault in particular, that do want to undermine community. Now, that's quite explicit. You recall Margaret Thatcher in her opening remarks saying, there is no society. There is no society. Uh, unwittingly, I'm sure she was paraphrasing Karl Marx, 
who condemned the autocratic societies of rulers of his day by saying they want to turn the population into what he called a sack of potatoes, isolated, atomized individuals who cannot join together to pursue not only their own interests, but the common good and are subject to the rules of autocrats. That's Thatcher. That's Reagan. That's neoliberalism. Population should be a sack of potatoes. Now, we shouldn't create illusions about the past. The liberal version in the US sense, kind of social democratic version, is not that different. The standard liberal theory of democracy, uh, quote, Walter Lippmann, the leading public intellectual of the 20th century, uh, Wilson, Roosevelt, Kennedy, liberal, wrote extensively about politics, highly regarded on the liberal left. The population are spectators, not participants in action. They are ignorant, meddlesome outsiders. Their function is to show up every four, four years, push a lever, go home, leave, leave the rest to us responsible men. That's the liberal view. It's not as harsh and brutal as the right-wing view. Not beautiful either. Okay, so no illusions about the past. Plenty more. Uh, I, if you look at Eisenhower, who you mentioned, Eisenhower was still within the New Deal framework. Eisenhower was a New Dealer, mildly social democratic. Okay. That was the period of capitalism into the 1970s. Very high growth, egalitarian growth, financial institutions were under control, no fancy financial manipulation, uh, no tax havens, illegal, blocked by the treasury, uh, no, no financial crises, uh, sometimes called the golden age of capitalism by economists. Plenty wrong with it, could go on with that, horrible in many ways. But in the history of modern capitalism, one of the better periods. Then comes the neoliberal regression. Let's undermine all of this, go back to the period before we had these moderately social democratic policies. Now, put things in the hands of private power, which is dedicated to one goal, enriching itself. Doesn't come from economic theory. Nothing in economics says anything like this. It's an ethical judgment. Uh, take corporations. If a corporation is set up, that's a gift from the public. The public grants the corporation gifts, limited liability, other gifts. Question is whether they have any responsibilities. Neoliberal doctrine says, no, we just take the gifts just as we take the bailouts, uh, the other the government subsidies, we take all this, but we have no responsibility just to enrich ourselves. Well, then you get results like the $47 trillion stolen from the public. So yes, people are upset with reason, but you can't just blame it on Fox News, which is bad enough. It goes much deeper than that. And if we want to overcome it, we've got to go to the roots. Uh, the root 
the best solution. Let, let's take, you mentioned health, Canada and the United States. Yes. It's a very interesting case. Why does Canada have public health and the United States doesn't? Two very similar societies. Well, you go back to the 1950s, you can see the reason. Uh, there are labor, the, there's a labor movement or was a labor movement, it's been crushed by neoliberalism, pretty live and vibrant in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, the very same union, say the United Auto Workers, same union in Canada and the United States took different positions on health. In the United States, the UAW worked to get good health care for its members. And in fact, the members of the UAW in a kind of class collaboration period got pretty good health care in return for abandoning any effort at control of the work, work of the workspace. Okay. Mm -hmm. Canada, the same unions took a different position. They called for health care for everyone. Well, that's one that continued. It's one of a number of factors that led to the fact that Canada has a system of public health care. It's not the best in the world by far, but relatively decent. The United States has a disaster. Uh, the health care system is about the costs are about twice as high as the other OECD countries, rich countries. The outcomes are among the worst. Uh, in fact, contrary to belief, the United States has a universal health care system. It's called emergency rooms. If you can drag yourself to an emergency room somehow, uh, they'll take care of you. Maybe take a couple of days, but they'll take care of you, often very good care. It's the cruelest, most costly, most savage form of universal health care that exists. It's not that alternatives are impossible. It's not that the population doesn't want alternatives. Population has been calling for what's called Medicare for all or single payer health care, universal health care uh, for years. The country is very much in the hands. It's very much a business-run society to a greater extent than others. Canada is not all that different, but it's more extreme in the United States. And that has consequences. You put more power in the hands of the business world, they're gonna be after a profit and power, of course. They're not uh, dedicated to the welfare of the population. You don't expect them to be. Uh, well, that has consequences like those I've mentioned. That, that was also true in the Eisenhower period, though less so. It's gotten much more extreme in the neoliberal period by design, by policy design. And that means to go after the problem, we have to go to that. Following up on what you just said, it's a shame that Sanders did not get the denomination. I have to say, because that would have entitled Americans to a better health care and education. Do you think the US left needs to be more internationalist? And if so, how would they go about doing that? Depends what kind of internationalism. If it's the kind of internationalism that says, let's 
devastate and destroy Indochina. Let's impose brutal dictatorships all over the Western Hemisphere and overthrow popular governments. Let's crush Cuba because of its successful defiance. That's the official term, successful defiance of US policy. If it's the kind of internationalism that says, let's invade Iraq and destroy the country and spread uh, 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 ethnic conflict all over the region. No, that's not the kind of internationalism we want. If it's the kind of internationalism which says, let's cooperate with other countries in overcoming the dire threat of environmental catastrophe, let's join with other countries in an international consortium to try to deal with developing vaccines and ensuring that the poor get some access to them, things like that. Yes, that's a, another kind of internationalism which we should have. It's a question of which kind. And my last question is the US left. I've been really troubled that the left has left material analysis of capitalism. Uh, we've uh, pretty much abandoned it, the focus on identity politics. One of the questions though that has come to me is the US left's turn away from materialist feminism to support sex work, surrogacy, and pornography. Now I know these are not topics you usually discuss, but these are issues that are coming out as now we are seeing a rise in surrogacy where India, even under Modi, turned away uh, international surrogacy. This has become something that's been boosted in Western Europe um, and the US and Canada. Sex work, the same thing, even though the rates of human trafficking are not getting better, they're getting worse. What is your take on this? How might the left address feminist concerns? The left should take feminist concerns very seriously, of course, as it has. Now that's a big change since the 1960s. Great increase in concern over feminist issues. You might recall that as late as 1975 uh, in the United States, women were not officially regarded as persons. Uh, constitutional right. law followed British common law in uh, regarding women as property, property of the father handed over to the husband. Of course, it changed over the years, but it wasn't until 1975 that the Supreme Court officially said that women are peers. They have a right to guaranteed right to appear in federal juries, their peers. Of course, that didn't end the problems. Now, when you turn to specific things like, say, sex workers and pornography, what I think the left should be concerned with is removing the social and, and, and condition, social and economic conditions that lead these to develop. But if they're there, have to be treated like other other people. I don't. I don't think you should uh, punish people from for moving into these professions. I think you should try to set up conditions in which they don't do it. That's different. Yes. Uh, the but uh, as far as identity politics are concerned, it's, it's, it's a complex issue. 
there are very positive reasons for it. There are issues of race, uh, gender, uh, others, uh, which have to be seriously dealt with. Take so-called race, I mean, pretend it exists for a moment as a, it's a sociological category, so let's accept it. Uh, we, we've had in the United States 400 years of vicious repression of people on the basis of race. Worst, most horrendous system of slavery in human history. Uh, large part of the basis for our economic growth and prosperity, followed by years of semi-slavery and a hideous legacy going to today. Uh, uh, women in subordinate controlled positions, as I said, not even officially persons until recently. Yes, all of these are major issues and they extend to other groups. So identity, what's called identity politics is in its essence, raising crucial issues to the level at which we ought to deal with them. Now, like any social movement, you pick it, you can find extremes which go beyond what they should. That's grist for the right wing, to tar the whole movement with excesses at the fringe. Okay, it's a problem within the movements to control them themselves. But identity, you just can't talk about generally. True, but what concerns me is that we're seeing a rise of, like when you said, if we can speak about race, we know that Darwin discounted race as a possibility amongst humans. He even made fun of people who thought that there were races amongst humans. Similarly, for feminists who are dealing with gender ideology and saying, hey, wait, we're not a feeling, we're not vestiture, we're just like everyone else. We're coming to a point in our modern history where people are trying to either combat stereotypes or meet them, hence the identity part. And it's caused real rifts in certain communities. Obviously, the legacy of our country, not only slavery, but Jim Crow, racism, inequalities of all sorts, 9-11, anti-Muslim you know, sentiment that we saw it was awful. That's not debatable. But now we're coming to a point in this almost resurgence of wanting to recreate what Anthony Appiah writes in, in My Father's House. He talks about racialism, that we're going almost back, you know, 360 to understand ourselves uniquely as races again, a fictional construct, or as a gender identity. What does that mean to feel like a woman? I mean, can I feel like Noam Chomsky? Can I feel like, what does, I've had several children. I don't know what feeling like a woman actually means aside from stereotype. And I worry that the left has been so ingrained in reviving some kind of authenticity back to CNN and Fox where you have a huge portion of the population today, especially millennials, who are facing no future. They know there's no job for them. They know they can study all they want, and they may very well be baristas at Starbucks for life. 
And I wonder if identity politics isn't becoming a, a gap filler, you know, almost in a sense that we have before us, you know, a kind of spiritual vapidness, you know, in our, in our culture, in our society, in our world, where we have lost the means of enlightenment, not just human kindness, but actual discussion. So if I say something that someone doesn't like on Facebook, I can be trolled, I can be reported, I can be lifted off Facebook because I say something that someone else does not agree with, that does not threaten life. So you see what I'm saying is, I worry that we've been caught up in the way that we want the world to see us or our own discourse as being completely and accurately, you know, you must agree with me, or all political discussion fragments, which we see on social media, it's insane. There's very little tete-a-tete speaking. People don't speak with each other, they speak at each other, if you know what I mean. That's a problem that people have to overcome. There's no law that can change that. Uh, these are matters of consciousness, awareness, uh, education, interaction, discussion, to try to improve the social community. Personally, I don't use social media at all, so I can't really comment on them, but I'm sure there are things there that should be overcome. Uh, these, in my view, these are, I agree, are problems. I don't think there are major problems. Our major problems, let's go back to what they are. We are in a moment of history where within, the within this generation, your generation, a decision has to be made as to whether human society is going to persist. Nothing less than that. We're talking about things like the pandemic, which is serious. We will overcome it at a terrible cost. We're not going to overcome the fact that the uh, Arctic, uh, the polar ice sheets are melting. That's finished. It's happening. It's there. It's permanent. One part of what is happening that is going to lead us to complete catastrophe if we continue on our present course. In comparison with that, the problems of social media, while real, are pretty minor. We're facing an increasing threat, serious threat, of nuclear war. Trump is tearing to shreds the arms control regime, which offered some protection, moving to develop new, more threatening weapons of mass destruction, increasing conflicts around the world, which could blow up and explode. That's overwhelmingly serious. We don't take care of things like that. We can kiss each other goodbye. These other problems won't matter. So yes, what you're talking about is significant. Let's keep it uh, in the right, uh, the right, give it the right proportion among the problems we face. Noam Chomsky, thank you very much.